I'm so proud of Lauren because in the midst of her own dark night of the soul, she, she didn't see that as an obstacle. She saw that as an opportunity. And I told her out in the atrium after first service, it, it just when you and, and Bailey Risk put that together, you had no idea how it was going to align with the content of this weekend. And I, I'd just like for you to see yourself through the lens, uh, not only of the scriptures we're going to look at, but also what, what Lauren's story is about. And we're glad you're with us for part two of this series called The Power of Night. The Power of Night. And there's a reason why we've chosen to call it that particular title, not The Power of Light, but The Power of Night. And we're glad you're with us. We have Big Splash Weekend coming up three weeks from today, August 29th. If you've been baptized before, this is the time for you to come and just be a part of the celebration of some people who have never been immersed as a result of their own conviction and choice. They may have been baptized as an infant, but they want to do it in, in uh, concert with their faith, their decision to be a follower of Christ. And uh, we love our August big splashes because it's usually hot and humid outside and it's a great time to jump in the water. We don't do February big splashes outside. We're really smart around here. We, we don't do that, but we do it August 29th. So just set that aside. Maybe you know a friend who's been teetering on the lines of faith and making that big splash jump with their life, and uh, we'd love for, for that to happen on August 29th. If you have questions about that, you can email our churchsouthbrook.org. You can go to the welcome counter today, and uh, they'll direct you every step you need to go. Also, remember, next month we're starting a series on this mystery, and I'm telling you, it is a mystery of the tithe concept. And I asked you last week, if you were here, if you weren't, that if you just need a prodding, that this could be your prodding to begin being, being a tither, and, and I'm going to explain in a, a series the mystery of it, and it's not meant to be a legalistic requirement, but the mystery of the tithe and how it becomes a tipping point in our journey. But if you say, you know, I'm going to start that now because I can, then I'd like for you to start now because I'd like to tell your story come September because there's always stories associated with people who make these decisions, and we'd love for you to do that today, beginning today, electronically. Through push pay, you can do it out there in, in the welcome counter. True story, this actually happened in the Ozarks. This actually happened. You may hear grow up in the Ozarks. Uh, has anybody seen the show, Ozark? Have you seen the show? And if you've seen the show or you grew up there, you know this could happen. This could actually happen in the Ozarks. But there was a passion play taking place on the streets of the Ozarks somewhere. And their own made-up uh, cobblestone, Vio del Dorosa, was taking place. And Jesus was carrying his cross in this passion play uh, down there, fabricated Vio Dolorosa. And uh, on this particular showing of this passion play in the Ozarks, a heckler had decided to give Jesus grief. Now, what he was doing was saying, basically, you are a sorry excuse for Jesus. You are terrible at this role. So much so, I kid you not, true story, that Jesus dropped his cross at a certain point and went over and punched the heckler. <laughs> now imagine that, you're playing Jesus. And he punches the guy. Well, the director takes him aside and says, you can't do that. You're playing Jesus. You can't retaliate. We're pretty safe on this one. Jesus didn't do that to the people who heckled him. Well, the next day, Jesus is carrying his cross again. Heckler shows up. 
You're a sorry excuse for Jesus. You're terrible at this. And just is heckling him to where Jesus drops his cross again and they restrained him. He had to be restrained. Director says, I'm telling you, we're going to have to find another Jesus if you don't get control of yourself. Third day of the passion play comes along. And the heckler shows up and he's heckling Jesus again, except this time Jesus has grown spiritually. And when he comes by the heckler, and the heckler's giving him a hard time, criticism, negativity, abuse, Jesus, through gritted teeth, looks at the heckler and says, I'll meet you after the resurrection. (laughs) Now, all of us who uh, are followers of Christ, we know that we are representatives. How many of you would say, there have been moments when I have not represented Jesus well? Yeah, we all have. We've had our moments where we go, oh, everybody has that. Everybody has that. Where we don't bring the light of Christ into a situation that the the emotion of the moment got the best of us and we brought the, the darkness of this world into the equation, into the situation. And this series is about, as I said last week, if you've been watching the Olympics, man, you know, you may have played badminton in the backyard, but if you watch badminton in the Olympics and that shuttlecock, which I love saying that word, the shuttlecock goes 200 miles an hour, you all of a sudden realize, hey, this is the real deal here. And you're not playing badminton in the backyard. You're playing in the Olympics, friends. Your life matters, and there better be an urgency to it, and you better get Get this straight, what we're talking about in this series. It is not a time with the night that is around us for us to hide our light. As the old preacher said, when the light goes out in the cave, it's a great time to be selling flashlights. And there's one thing better than that. It's a great time to be giving them away, right? Jesus put it this way when he said, he looked at people just like you and just like me, and he said, you are my plan. This is your time. There's going to come a day when it's not your time. Your time will have passed, but right now it's your time. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot, must not be hidden. And and people don't light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before people that they may see your good deeds. And glorify your Father who is in heaven. That your life is 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 really this simple. You let light in, you let light out. You let the light in, you let the light out. You don't hide it. And more than ever, it is imperative upon Christ's followers to not just have the bumper sticker with the fish on it that proves they're a Christian, but to actually be light bearers. And people don't care whether you, you know, have the John 3.16 plaque in your house or not. They don't care about that. What, they, what matters in terms of your influence, your amazing influence, is do you bear light? And do it in such a way that people go, what makes you tick? And this is the challenge that we're offering this series is for you to get out of the badminton, backyard badminton habit and realize now is the time. Now is your time. And there's a verse of scripture in 1 Peter. Peter wrote to Christians scattered throughout Cappadocia, Pontus, Galatia, Bithynia, etc. He's writing to these Christians scattered around, and I love it. You know, the Bible, the New Testament only says about seven things. It really does. It only says seven things. It just says them in a different way. It uses different metaphors. I want to show you this because this is the exact same thing that Jesus said in Matthew 5, 14 to 16 that we just read. It's the same thing, but he uses different language. And look what he says to those formerly non-followers of Jesus, now followers of Jesus. You are a chosen people, he says. 
That literally means drafted. You have been drafted. You were picked in the first round. A royal priesthood. A, you are a royal priesthood. Now, remember that time a long time ago when I said some of you grew up in a tradition where you're going to have to really listen to me with an open, objective, objective mind? This is that moment. This is that moment. He says, you are a royal priesthood. From that statement is what emanated what's called the priesthood of all believers. He says, you are a holy nation, which means set apart. Israel wasn't picked to be God's people because they were so good. They were picked, the, 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 the word Hebrew means wanderer. We would call them homeless. He, he said, I, I picked Israel because they weren't anything. And I would show my glory through them. And you are that. God's special possession. You're not valuable because of what you are. You're valuable because of whose you are. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And this is an astounding statement that, that you could just hear this if you grew up in certain tradition and just blow it off. Because there is nothing in your theology that allows for you to understand you're a part of a priesthood. What? That's right. You're a part of a priesthood. Because many of you grew up in traditions where they're the normal people and then there are the people who have a special access to God. It's the priests and the pastors. They have special access. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've had people say, hey, put in a good word with me this week, will you, with the big guy? You know? <laughs> or how many times I've been golfing and this has happened. Somebody, they don't know me, but they find out I'm a pastor and the weather starts turning bad and Inevitably, this happens. The same thing. They'll go, hey, can you do something about this? <laughs> and years ago, I came up with this stock answer. I'm in sales, not management. I can't do anything about the weather, friend, okay? And so there's this, but this is a theology that is, all heresy is an, a, a truth taken to an extreme. Do the offices of apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher matter? Yes, they do. But you and I together form the priesthood. What? That's right. This is the number one inhibitor of the light of Christ coming into our darkened culture. It's you thinking, it's my job, and I have a special acuity for it, but you don't. Of course, I've had the position for many years of seeing people who would like to punch my lights out, but they'll listen to you because I'm a pastor. The opposite often is true. You can have an influence that I cannot have. And so all Christ followers have a priestly duty. And that is this. Look at this. Write this down. All of us, once you become a follower of Christ, you're drafted into his movement and his priesthood to meet God in the holy place and proclaim him in the marketplace. Start, say that with me. Meet God in the holy place and proclaim him in the marketplace. Sometimes it gets real fuzzy and complicated. What is my life about? That's it. Now, the holy place isn't necessarily this building. This can be. It is right now a holy place. We just sang to God together. There's something holy about that. But the holy place can be your office. It can be your study. It can be your living room. It can be your back porch where you set aside, we call it solitude, 
you let the light in. You open the windows of God's grace and you affirm I'm a beloved child of the most high God with supreme value and worth just as I am today. And you let the love of God light into your life. And then your duty is within the context of your life, let that be known in the marketplace. It is, it is undeniable, it is unquestionable, this priesthood of all believers. We are all royal priests, Jesus is our high priest. Matter of fact, Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, he says, remind the people that there's one mediator between God and people, and that is the man Christ Jesus. I don't have special access to God any more than you do. When Jesus was crucified, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. You know why that happened? Now everyone can come into the holy place. Everyone can. You know why? You say, well, why the church create this complexity? It's control is why the church does things like that, is we want to put the fear of God into people, so we're going to control them. But no, you have access. All people, like the priests of the Old Testament, can come into the presence of God through the blood of the Lamb. And remember, the Old Testament had this constant, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. It was conditioning us that there would need to be someone who was holy that would take our place in our place for us to have access to a holy God, and he did. The Lamb of God came. All people can handle holy things, like the Bible. I know some of you grew up in tradition, you know, oh, you know, I, I can't understand the Bible. And you still believe that lie today. You can. Do you know, that, you know there were two kinds of Greek in the New Testament era? There was classical Greek, which we would call high English, you know, real fancy. And then there was koine, or slang Greek, which the common people spoke. Guess which, guess which form of Greek the New Testament was written in? Slang was written in koine Greek. You know, I have a friend, Aaron Matson, who has a Hawaiian translation of the Bible, and it just sounds like Hawaiians talking, because it's just in that common slang language. And so all people can, can learn the scriptures. Doesn't mean that my role as a gifted teacher, I've been gifted to do this role, isn't important. It just doesn't mean that I can understand the Bible any better than you can. All people can share the gospel of Christ to those in darkness who need his light. All Christians enjoy the same access to Christ and are spiritually equal before him. And when you remove this barrier, do you understand what Lauren Loney is doing? She is being a mediator between heaven and earth for those girls. She is doing a priestly thing, right? That's what priests do. They mediate between heaven and earth. Jesus is our high priest who mediates between heaven and earth for us. He hears our prayers. And that's what Lauren's doing for those girls. And this is you. This is your purpose. Your purpose wasn't to discover whether or not you're a welder or an electrician and God has a will for you to be a welder. And if you miss that, you've missed it. No, that, that God doesn't care. God can, God can raise up electricians if he needs them or welders. If he, what, he, what he does want you to do is understand you're a chosen person. That you've been called to meet him in the holy place and proclaim him in the marketplace. We have been called out of darkness. The priesthood of all believers does not make everyone into church workers. But what it does do is it turns every life into a sacred calling. Chip King is a football coach at Waynesville. And he showed me a text that he had sent his coaches this morning that he found that said, hey, someday you will have had hundreds, a baseball coach speaking, he said hundreds of young men come through your, your coaching, and you don't want to stand before God someday and say, I made great baseball players. You want to stand before God someday and say, I made great young men. And this is, this is so Chip showed that to me this morning because he understands his calling is way beyond making football players. And 
All of us can proclaim the light. You don't have to have a theology degree. You don't have to know everything about the Bible. What you can do is say, Here, here's the light that's been given in my life. It may, be, it may be a result of this weekend. Here's light that's been given me, and I just I know that every day when I get up, I, 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 have, I have two things to do. Let the light in, let the light out. And when I act like Jesus in the Ozarks, I, I ask for forgiveness, and, and I get back up, and I do, do, it, do it again, right? You see, he goes on, he says, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, which Christians were, Christians were, Christian was a derisive term. They didn't call themselves Christians. They, they were called Christians out of insult. And he says, you abstain from sinful desires that war against your soul. It brings darkness into your life. And then live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, which Christians were because they were so different, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. What does that sound like? It sounds like Matthew 5.16, what we just read, that, that your life is such a life that has let the light in that the contrast is remarkable. The contrast is remarkable. We have all been called out of darkness into his light so we can proclaim that light. No one has a special insight in, in connection to God necessarily. Here's, I love the story. There's a Catholic priest and a pastor of a Christian church who went golfing together. And on the first hole, the Catholic priest had a, about a 30-foot putt. He lined it up and he crossed himself and he putted it right in the hole. Christian church pastor had about a 10-footer, lined his up, putted it, missed it. Second hole, Catholic priest had about a 40-foot putt, lines it up, crosses himself, putts it, goes in the hole. Christian church pastor had about a 15-footer, lined it up, putted it, missed it. And this goes on for a few holes. Get to about the sixth hole, and the Christian church pastor, they're not dumb. They, he starts thinking, there's, there's, there's got to be something to this. And so... He kind of turns around so nobody can see him, and he's lining up his 30-foot putt, and he, he crosses himself. He lines up the putt, misses it. The Catholic priest looks at him and says, it doesn't help you a lick if you can't putt. I mean, it just doesn't help at all if you can't putt. <laughs> There's no special, you know, oh, man, you know. I remember Yogi Bear used to say it was always confounding when the batter would step into the box and go like this, and the pitcher before the pitch would go like this. Is it going to be a tie? You know, what's going to happen? And he would say to the batter, let's leave God out of this, all right? Let's just leave God out of this. So there's not this special secret and that some of us have and some of us don't. All of us can enter the Holy of Holies and go into the marketplace and say, light has come into my life. Now let me give you what I think are specific potential contrasting points that you're living within right now. And I put these in a way that we can remember them. They spell night, N-I-G-H-T. I think these are, there are more, but these are five that if you'll get intentional, you'll notice that right now we have potential for contrast if you will let the light of Christ shine through. Negativity, individualism, greed, haughtiness, and terror. Would anybody agree that you see those in our culture right now? You see these in our culture. For example, uh, negativity. Negativity is off the charts. We are a people, even within the midst of a pandemic, have no one in the history of the world's ever had it better, but we don't focus on the 95% that is good. We talk about the 5% that is not good, right? And we are masters at being negative. If you disagree with me on that and you want to get up and leave right now, you're being negative. See, you're, you're, <laughs> you're, just, you're just looking at things negatively. 
And so, you know, talk radio and Twitter. I mean, I finally, months ago, I just stopped Twitter because it's just like, who needs that negativity in their life? Who needs it? I don't. I don't need it. And this is a powerful, powerful point of contrast that negativity is so rampant that it is easy to contrast that. Just be positive. Just, just, you're not a Pollyanna walking around saying, oh, everything's great, everything's good, everything's wonderful, hip-hop happy day. No, you, you know there are things that are inequitable, you know that, but you're not negative. Seeing the negative and everything. Paul, there are a lot of problems the Philippian church had, so there's some really practical things he said to them. But one of them, he said, that was clearly a problem in the Philippian church, and it's a problem in our church and our culture, is do everything without complaining. Now, I'm going to show you what he's, the value he attaches to that. But, but before I do that, I want you to say it with me two times. Are you ready? Are you ready? Say it with me. That, just, just those four words. Do everything without complaining. Say it again, like with passion for the person next to you who needs to be saying it louder than they actually are. <laughs> Say it, ready? Do everything without complaining. Now, if you, you know, I don't like it when he makes us say things out loud. You're the person I'm talking to. You need that verse. Because you just, your mind just goes there. It just goes there uh, immediately. You just go to the negative. You just go to the critical. You just go to the... You know, I, I just, I, especially my coaching friends who are, who are coaching say, it's just off the charts now, man. I mean, the negativity is just off the charts. It's like the green ooze in Ghostbusters. Remember that? It's like there's this green ooze coming out of the, of, the, of the streets, and it's just causing people to be negative and argue about everything. So you do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become positive. It doesn't say that. It says, so you may become blameless and pure. That our attitude is connected to our direction in life. Children of God, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. It's like, I say it's night, he says it's warped. And I would agree with that. Then, remember, then what? Then if you're not complainers or arguers, you will shine among the warped. Like stars in the skies, you'll affirm the word of life, and I'll be able to boast on the day of Christ I did not run or labor in vain. Look at that. You want a contrast? Just don't be negative Nancy. Don't be a Karen. Don't be a Karen. Don't be that. You're not that person. You hold out the word of life. And then look at this. Here's the thing I have seen. I've literally seen people lose their faith just because they were so critical all the time. Because it gets you in a vortex of negativity. And before long, you're going around. There's an old story about the uh, grandpa who was taking a nap on the couch, and the, and the grandkids came in and sprayed this putrid bug spray on his mustache. And he woke up, and he, this house stinks. He went into the kitchen. The kitchen stinks. He went outside. The whole world stinks. And the world didn't stink. It was under grandpa's nose that stunk. When you begin to look at everything negatively and critically, and you miss that. And here's, here's, here's the answer to that is levity. Levity isn't frivolity. Levity is the lightness that comes knowing there's a God who's in charge. And I can even see the humor in things that are tough. I can see the humor in things that are negative. It is a special gift when you do not get undone by negativity. When you see the 95% was good and you say with the word of God, let us rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say it, rejoice. Today is the day the Lord has made. I'm going to rejoice and be glad in that. 
That is not shallow, syrupy, positive, postmodern, new age thinking. That is biblical theology that there is a God who is in charge and I can, I can be light through even the heaviest things of life. I was talking to one of our gals, Sharon, after the first service and and she's been given a terminal diagnosis. She, the doctors are saying she'll be gone in two years because the cancer has gone into her spine. And she is just such an infectious joy. Through her tears and through her dark night of the soul, she doesn't want to leave this earth. She still has light. And it was really inspiring. Next one's individualism. Think about yourself first. Think about yourself first. When I started coaching, my dear friend who was my boss at the time, Troy Holtry, he said, you need to remember this when you get into coaching, that every parent, you need, to, you need to assume that every parent wants their child to be first team all state more than they want their team to win the state. You just need to assume that. Because there is this self-interest in our culture that is so strong. Real interesting deal. The, the, the clear contrast to that is interdependence. Remember the three stages of maturity in life? Immaturity is dependence. You're, you're young. You need your parents to make all the food for you. You need, you need them to change your diaper. You need, you need someone to do it. You're dependent. And then you move into the stage of, of, depend, of, of independence where you can make the peanut butter and jelly sandwich on your own. It's a big day when you can do that. You can feed yourself. And that's a big day. The mistake that we often make is we think that's maturity. It's not maturity. Maturity is when you move to the third stage of life. And that is I'm mature enough to be a team player. I'm mature enough to have the, the greater interest in mind, not just my interest, I am interdependent. And it's a, it's a huge contrast when people in our communities are interdependent people. They don't just think of my kid's scholarship. They think of the greater whole. It's a huge point of contrast. What about greed? This is the idea, that it's not just financial, it's the idea that more is always better. More, 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 more. And we Americans are drunk with the notion that if a little is much is good, then more is better. One of our speakers at the summit this year, she's the president of First Bank of Nigeria, and she's had a little formula, too much plus too little equals enough. Some of us have too much. Other people have too little. When we come together, it's enough. You see, People who are dark live with a scarcity mindset. You never know when it's going to run out. we got to get ours. But people who are people of the light have an abundance mindset. There's plenty to go around. There's plenty of attention. There's plenty of acclaim. There's plenty of assets. And God takes care of the birds of the air. He's going to take care of us. And I can live with a generous spirit. Oh my gosh, you stand out in this dark night of the soul type culture. What about haughtiness? Not hotness, haughtiness. And it's that, that source of pride. We live in a very self-promoting culture. This gets a little complicated because you do have to fill out your resume and, and list your assets. But we live in a culture, especially the sports world, where it is so much about self-promotion and boasting. And I mean, how often do you watch a professional sports event and you go, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, friend. I mean, it's like every time I watch a sporting event, yeah, there it is again. 
That's why I love the Olympics, because the spirit of the Olympics, you don't see that as much, right? You don't see that as much in the Olympics. There's this incredible spirit that's infused. What, what, about, what about this? Philippians 2.3 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. I mean, the Philippian church really had some problems, didn't they? Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Oh my gosh, what a potential point of contrast. Humility. It comes from the word humus, the Latin word which means of the earth. Humility just means I'm no better, I'm no worse. We're no better, we're no worse. We are just of the earth like you are. Everybody's a dust bunny, right? Everybody is. From the dust we came, from the dust we shall return. We are of the earth. And remember, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is not a point of insecurity. Actually, humility is a point of strength. Humility allows you to think of yourself less, not less of yourself. Oh my gosh, what a point of contrast. What a point of contrast. Look at this one. Humility and then the contrast, that the potential in fear, terror. We have seen in the last year and a half, we are a strongly fear-based culture, aren't we? We've seen it politically. We, I mean, oh my gosh, we have seen the power that fear can bring on people to vote a certain way, to act a certain way. It is powerful. I've been in a church work for almost four decades. Trust me, we, it's so easy to go to the card, pull the card of fear if you want people to do something. And it's a temptation. And so we live in this culture that is terror-based. Well, I have a confession to make. This summer, this last three months, I've had a huge, huge growth surge for me because I realized for years I had a self-righteous attitude of superiority to all you fear-based earthlings. And, and, I, and I just like, oh, all these people have all these hang-ups and they're afraid of this, they're afraid of that. I'm afraid of snakes. Okay, I'll give you that. I don't, I don't need no snakes. And, but I know that I'm not afraid. And I highly advise you read this if you're like me. Uh, my daughter gave me the book by Doug Brackman and Randy Kelly called Driven. It's about how 10% of us have this genetic mutation, no kidding, left over from a, a hunting culture. We are hunters. We obsess about projects. We obsess about winning. We obsess. We get our, we get our eyes onto something. We lock in. And this book, I, it was just, oh my gosh, it was written for me. The chapter on shame, as much as I've been a student of shame for 40, almost 40 years, it was the best chapter I've ever read on shame and what it does. But in the book, he showed how we drivens are driven by fear. What? No, I'm not afraid. I'm brave. And he just filleted me as I realized that I am I am a fear-based person. And realize it, but I have a long way to grow. And that's significant because you've heard me say this. My life verse is 1 John 4, 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is fear. You cannot love and be self-centered at the same time because you're so afraid of what you might lose. You cannot. The opposite of love is fear. That's why you cannot help an insecure man. The male ego, it's so fragile, and insecurity, you cannot help an insecure man. It's got to be a God thing. The more you try, the more you'll make it worse, and it's an awful thing. It's why many of us men can't love well because we're little, afraid little boys who refuse to acknowledge it. And this is huge. 
And how do you, how do you, how do you get out of that? And it's, it's, it's trust. It's growing into such a trust that God is in charge and has power over through my life that I don't need to live all the time being afraid of what I might lose, you know? And I was living in that in the last year and a half as our church. We lost our church in many ways for a while. We, all this that I'd worked for, it was gone. And maybe you today, you needed to hear this today. What's dimming your light is fear. You're afraid. And, and now it's to grow in trust. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he'll direct your path. He'll take care of you. There's a verse in Romans that epitomizes today's subject matter. This is the sermon in a sentence where Paul says, where sin increases, grace increases all the more. There's this amazing dynamics why Christ followers more than anyone shouldn't panic when things go awry, when the night seems to be growing more dark. And that is, is there's this dynamic that the more things go off, off rails, the more it gives a potential for contrast for the light of grace to be seen. And I mean, it's just cool. You, like, the more you give a cross, the more I'll bring an empty tomb. The more you give a cross, the more I'm going to forgive sin. I mean, it's just like evil cannot win because the very thing it uses is used against it. When a diamond cutter wants to show you the power of a diamond, what does she do? She puts it against a black backdrop. So the more sin increases, the more the light of grace increases. Do you believe me when I say that you are the pivot point for that to be in your world? You are the pivot point for that reality. Will you open up the windows and let the light in? Two years ago, I told a story about a woman. She's my age, actually, so she's a young woman. Uh, and she is a senior lecturer at the College of Writing at the, University, at the University of Akron. Her name is Auburn Sandstrom. Some of you will remember this story when I tell it, but I have to repeat it because it is exactly what I'm telling you today. In 1992, she was 29 years old, and she was in a dark, dank, dirty, decrepit apartment building in serious withdrawal from her heroin addiction. She wanted to jump out the window and end it all because she felt like she'd been living for five years in constant anxiety, panic attacks. But that little baby boy in the room behind her prevented her from doing that. She just couldn't do it. And uh, her life was really symbolized and encapsulated by her body. Her body was marked with needle marks and bruises. When she was a young lady, she had grown up in a privileged family. She had all of her undergraduate degree paid for at a prestigious college. She Got her master's degree. She went abroad for a year. She was the kind of girl. She got piano, dance, French lessons when she was growing up. She had it all. And like many students who are, who are discontented with their life, they think erroneously that the way to fix themselves is to undo the life they've been given. Just undo it. Which means trash your life. Wreck your life. Throw the baby out with the bathwater. And when, if you decide to do that, students, you will find people that will help you do that. 
That's the problem. You'll always find people who will help you ruin your life. And she did. She found a man who provided her with the drug that she would eventually be addicted to. He was also the man who abused her. And while they would have good times, they had this little boy. It was awful. And in 1992, she found herself in this apartment. And in her pocket was a note, a little piece of paper that her mother, to whom she had not spoken for three, four, five years, found a way to get to her. And on the note it said, if you ever find yourself in need, here's a number of a Christian counselor that you can call and he will help. She wasn't religious at the time. She didn't have any faith at the time. But she was so desperate that on that night at two in the morning, she dialed that number. She pulled that note out of her pocket and she dialed that number. The line on the other end answered and a man clearly groggy because he was asleep. She could hear him getting up from his bed and sitting up, turning down the radio that was on. And he said, hello. She said, I'm so sorry to call at night, but I was desperate and I need help. And she said she could hear him sitting up in the bed and saying, okay, okay, what can I, what can I do for you? And she began to tell her whole story up to this most desperate moment where she was bruised because her husband had tried to throw her and her young boy out of a car moving 60 miles an hour. True story. She gets up to that point and she said, when he sat up in that bed, I could tell he became present. He wasn't just on the other end of the line. He was on the other end of my story. He was listening. And this went on all night long until the sun came up. He talked her through the night. Some of you have been in a situation where someone talked you through the night, right? And it got to the morning, the sun came up, and to where she finally said, I, I feel like I can live today. You're, you're so good at this. How long have you been a Christian counselor? And he said, Auburn, I've been trying to avoid this because I was afraid you would hang up. But you dialed the wrong number. I'm not a Christian counselor. I've never counseled anyone. I'm not a pastor. When you called, I just felt like I could listen. She said on that night, she began to get her life back. Not immediately. But she began to get her life back. A life that now she's a senior lecturer. That little boy in 2013 was awarded a scholar-athlete award at Princeton University. And she said this man who, who, who didn't judge her, who just listened with grace. She said the next day I experienced something that I've heard called, and this is from Philippians 2, 4, peace that passes understanding because I had experienced that there was a random love in the world that was unconditional and some of it was for me. The power wasn't in it was someone she knew. The power was in it was someone she didn't know. She didn't get her life back that day, she said, but this is what I know. In the deepest, blackest night of despair, listen, listen to this. In the deepest, blackest night of despair and anxiety, it only took a pinhole of light for grace to come flooding in. 
It is your moment, friend. It may be this week that you can be that pinhole of God's light where his grace comes flooding in. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing? That can be you and me. Let's pray. Father, I pray that today that everyone here drops their clergy laity distinctions. We walk out of here saying, I have been called. I am chosen. I am a part of the royal priesthood because I have said I am of the high priest. I am of Christ. I have been called to live a life that meets you in the holy place and shares your light with the Auburn Sandstroms of the world in the marketplace because we never know when we are the one who becomes that pinhole of light and grace comes flooding in and everybody in the name of the light of the world who wants this to happen through them said... Amen. Amen. See you next week, everybody, for part three.